0: Friends, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me there to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this morning we're reading verses 12 to 22. Uh, now we're in a sermon series they're calling Grace for the Weak. And the overall theme of 2 Corinthians, uh, we hope, is, is captured uh, in this sermon series title, Grace for the Weak. Uh, for those who are able to admit and embrace their weakness, um, The gospel tells us God doesn't despise you because of it. Rather, God delights to give and pour out his abundant grace to those who are weak. Uh, Now, the past two weeks, we looked at weakness in suffering, as Paul meditated on that in verses 3 to 11. Today, Paul recounts a very specific experience of suffering in weakness, and that is the experience of being the object of verbal accusations, assaults, and attacks. And what we see is when Paul underwent this, he was able to endure it uh, with the utmost gospel integrity. And so that's the focus of our sermon this morning. When suffering under verbal accusations, misjudgments, assumptions, how do you live with gospel integrity? If you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We stand because it is an act of worship, as it shows us that we have reverence to hear from our God as he speaks to us now in the scripture. 2 Corinthians 1, I'll be reading verses 12 to 22. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, Just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And would you join me in prayer once more? Lord, we're thankful for your scriptures, uh, even in the parts uh, that are a bit more difficult to understand. So give to us an illumination of heart and mind to understand the words that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that we read today. Give us understanding, but more than that, give to us encouragement, give to us transformation, give to us, Lord, a heart and a desire that even through hearing your word, we would rejoice and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've ever been the subject of gossip or rumors, uh, you'll know that it's just as agonizing and painful to endure as other forms of suffering. You know, as a kid, you're taught some coping mechanisms. You're taught that expression, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Um, But of course, as you get older, you realize that the opposite is true. Uh, Certainly physically, you get Tired and and sore more easily. Uh, Yesterday, our community group went apple picking, uh, and after just about 30 minutes of that, uh, I was so wiped I went home and I took a nap. Um, So, certainly, your body gets tired, but you know, you learn the older you get that broken bones heal, stitches come out, casts are taken off, physical therapy can help a great deal. You also discover that words, those words that you're told will never hurt you, actually begin to land scars on your body, scars on your heart, scars in your mind. Accusations made about you, attacks leveled at you. These things can cause great wounds. Now, Apostle Paul was a man who was very familiar with sticks and stones. His life was a life of incredible physical suffering. He describes some of it later in this book. In chapter 11, he talks about it. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. a night and day I was adrift at sea." You know, Paul was a man acquainted with physical suffering, but that wasn't the full extent of his suffering. As we read in our passage today, we find that Paul suffered because his name and reputation were being dragged through the mud by people in Corinth who not only doubted his apostolic identity, but they begin to doubt and put his very Christian character and integrity into question. What these believers in Corinth did was interpret his actions in the worst possible light without offering any charity, without extending any grace toward him. They didn't ask Paul to explain his decisions. They didn't give uh, Paul a chance to explain his side. Instead, they made quick judgments about him and they assigned to him the worst possible motives. Maybe some of you have endured something like this before. A situation where you were greatly misunderstood. Something you said or something you did were construed in the most negative way, where you had your motivations and your intentions, questions, where your character came under scrutiny and suspicion. Anybody who's endured these kinds of accusations or misattribution of motives, knows, yes, sticks and stones may break your bones, but the words people utter about you, the words they say to you or behind your back, those can hurt forever. In the midst of that kind of situation, what's a Christian to do? How does a Christian respond when unfair or even untrue things are spoken about them? Because we all know the human heart. If your heart is like mine, you want to retaliate you wanna strike back, you want revenge, you want an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. If somebody drags your name through the mud, you wanna drag their name through deeper mud. If somebody questions your intentions, you wanna make sure their intentions are exposed. But Paul shows us by his own example that Christians are to pursue gospel integrity at all costs. Even when your flesh wants to respond a certain way, the gospel calls us to respond a different way. What does that look like? What does that look like? Three things we see in our passage. To live with gospel integrity means, one, keep a clear conscience before God. Two, remain gracious toward the ungracious. And three, be consistently true to your word. So we're going to take each one of these three in order. Number one, keep a clear conscience before God. Now, we need to understand what the heck is happening in this passage. And what is happening is uh, Paul made a plan to visit the church in Corinth. He planted this church. And so we read in verse 15, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. Paul had gone to the church before. He plans to visit them again. And so he gives them his itinerary, his travel plans. He writes in verse 16, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to to Judea. So Paul lays out his Plans. If you've ever gone traveling, right, you may be the type of person, like, like I am, where you go, uh, here's the list of places I want to go. Here's the places I want to eat. And then you see, how do the two mix together? Paul was a master uh, itinerary planner. He was a missionary, went out on three journeys, knew exactly where he was going, when he was going to be there. So Paul lays out his plans, but something happens and his plans have to change. But because he didn't visit the Corinthians like he said he would, the people in the church get really, really upset at him. They get salty. And as a result, some people look at Paul and they say, you can no longer be trusted. They claimed he was a liar. Oh, Paul, he's the type of guy who says one thing and does another. And their logic went like this. If we can't trust Paul on something small, like showing up when he says he's going to show up, how can we trust him when he preaches the gospel? That's a heavy accusation. But Paul, ever a man of godly integrity, responds in verse 12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. Now the word boast here is translated, uh, better translated as confidence. And Paul saying that with confidence, I can say before you in the midst of all the unfair accusations leveled at me, that I have a clear conscience. I have a clear conscience before God, which is an amazing thing to think about because his priority wasn't first on defending himself. If you've ever come under someone's suspicion, if you've ever been misattributed with motives, what's the very first thing you wanna do? It's to defend yourself. It's to give your side of the story. It's to win the people who have been swayed the other way back onto your side. But Paul's first priority was to have, have a clear conscience before God. Specifically that he says, behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. I mean, in his conscience, he knew his motives were straightforward. They were pure. You see, what others put into question Paul put before God to examine. And it's amazing to see this and read this because most of us in this kind of situation, we're so prone to fall into the fear of man, to be so concerned with what others think about us. But Paul's concern was first with the Lord's assessment. He was controlled not by the fear of man, but by the fear of God. And this is what living with integrity means. Seeking to be right first and foremost with the Lord. And Paul understood that. He knew God's opinion and his evaluation of him was the most important. And because of that, what God said about him was infinitely more important than whatever others were misunderstanding and misjudging about him. And there's something to learn there. How do you make sure you have a clear conscience before God when others come? And cast suspicion on you, the things you said, the things you've done. Well, one way is to learn to pray what the psalmist did in Psalm 139. Here we read this prayer Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. If you pray this kind of prayer, you ask the Lord to search you and know you, it'll lead to one of two outcomes. The first is this, if you hear accusations made about you, people grumbling and spreading gossip and rumors about this thing, questioning this part of something you did, then the first thing we can do is to ask the question, is there any kernel of truth in this? Is there anything about what's being said, even if 99% of it is false, is if there, if there even 1% that could be right? because that may lead you to further examine yourself. Maybe there is something you actually need to repent of before God. Maybe there is a person you need to ask for forgiveness because you hurt them and you didn't even realize. Maybe you were unclear and ambiguous with what you said you would do. You know, the whole of what people may say about you may not be true. Most of it may be completely false, but if there's even a sliver of truth, if even a sliver can be accurate, Would you listen to it? Begin with self-examination before God. And if you find something to be true, then receive it as an opportunity to grow and experience his grace again. And then with a clear conscience, you can move on. Or you can pray the prayer of Psalm 139. And like Paul come to the conclusion that you truly behaved with simplicity and godly sincerity, that you had no intent to deceive, your intentions were pure before God, and then you can rest. You can rest knowing that before God, you are cleared, you are right, you are justified, that he has searched you, he has known you, he has tested you, and he has tried you. And resting in God's assessment over you, having a clear conscience before him, Begins to loosen the white knuckled grip of the opinions of man over you. Now, yes, of course, you might still be hurt and bruised by the stinging accusations of others, but you won't be crushed under it because God's justification and God's vindication will uphold you, and in Him you will prevail. So to live with gospel integrity you must keep a clear conscience before God first and foremost. Now here's the second thing. Remain gracious toward the ungracious. It's amazing at the lack of grace Paul's opponents had. They didn't want to just disagree with him. They wanted to discredit him. And as a result they moved with no charity toward him. They only moved with judgment and suspicion. And so it'd be completely uh, justifiable in our opinion if Paul decided to fight fire with fire. If they pointed one finger at him, it would be right for him to point two fingers back at them. But what we see Paul doing is so different and so surprising because his life was in accord with the gospel. Listen to what he writes. Now this part gets a little confusing, but listen to this in verses 13 and 14. He says, for we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand. So he's saying, I wasn't trying to be confusing. I wasn't trying to be ambiguous. I wasn't speaking in ways that were confusing. I tried to be as straightforward as possible. And then he says, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Paul says this, at the end of the day, despite all the accusations and all the suspicion you're casting at me, when Jesus returns on the day of the Lord Jesus, I will boast of you the very people who are dragging his name and reputation to the gutter, Paul says on the day Jesus returns, I will boast of you. Now that's not self-glorification. Boast here means I will celebrate. I will be proud of the fact that through my ministry, you are saved. Now that's not the natural response of the human heart. That those who have done something to you, you will boast in them and celebrate them when the Lord Jesus returns. Now, how many of you are, uh, one of many siblings. Uh, there are a few uh, only children in the room, but uh, those of you who grew up with siblings, you remember uh, sibling rivalry. You remember s- sibling fighting and arguing. Sometimes it was only verbal, um, yelling, screaming. Sometimes it was physical, a little uh, wrestling, shoving, pushing, pulling. Um, as the youngest of three, I you know, fought a lot as a kid uh, and I lost a lot. Um, And, you know, there was only one way, really, that I could, uh, as soon as I knew a fight was going to happen, prevent it from actually starting. And that was to threaten my older brother, my older sister, that I would do what? Tell mom and dad, right? As soon as things got a little agitated, I had to learn quickly to say, when mom and dad get home, (laughs) I'm going to tell them everything. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, he's a snitch, but, you know, it was for my own survival. You had to be able to threaten and say, hey, listen, when mom and dad return, I'm going to tell them everything. Paul had every right to say to the Corinthians, all right, you guys are accusing me. <laughs> when Jesus returns, I'm going to tell them everything. I'm going to tell him all the things you're saying about me. I'm going to tell him all the ways that you're doubting and casting suspicion on me. That's so baseless and groundless. But Paul doesn't say that. And he surprises us by saying, I know you're falsely accusing me. But when Jesus returns, I will boast in you. I will have my confidence and gladness in that you know Jesus Christ. How does that happen? And that can only happen from a heart that knows the gospel because according to the flesh, if somebody demonizes you, what do you want to do in response? You wanna demonize them back. When you're hurt, what do you want to do to that person? You wanna hurt them back. When suspicion is cast on you, what do you want to do? You want to cast it right back. If you've ever been the the victim of character assassination, have you ever just fantasized about all the ways you're gonna get back at somebody? If your actions were ever doubted and motives misjudged, you ever daydreamed about how you're going to get others to distrust them? The natural response of the heart is to be ungracious toward those who are ungracious toward us. That's the way of the flesh. And yet Paul, transformed by the gospel, began to see and treat people differently. And that's because he knew how God had treated him with undeserved favor. What was the gospel Paul experienced? It was the good news that God gives sinners what they don't deserve. Grace. You know, Paul experiences powerfully in his own life. He testifies to it in 1 Timothy 1 where he writes these words. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me, faithful, appointing me to his service. Though, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But, I've received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I knew I was a blasphemer and I was a persecutor, an insolent opponent. I know that I deserve nothing good from the hand of God. And yet, despite that, God didn't give Paul what he deserved, but lavished upon him what he didn't deserve. Paul deserved judgment for his sins. And yet in its place, he received an abundance of grace and mercy from God. And the question friends is this, if you know the gospel and you see yourself in the same way as Paul, knowing that you don't deserve anything good from God because of your sin against him. And yet, you know, he's met you with grace, mercy, compassion, forgiveness, and kindness. It has a powerful way of redefining what you think a person deserves. It changes your outlook because you didn't get what you deserved. And so you give out of the abundance of what you have received in Christ, you begin to pour out on others. You know, it's an interesting thing to think about our relationship with God because it's vastly different in our relationship with others. On a horizontal plane between you and somebody else, we constantly live in a reality of being. Uh, sinned against and sinning against. We sin against others. We're sinned against by others. But vertically before God, it's a one-way street. It's a one-way reality. We sin against him. He has never once sinned against you. Before the Lord, you are only an offender, never the offended. Before God, you are only ever the culprit, never the victim. And yet God was so gracious to you that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, into the world. And yet, when Jesus came to the world as God's gift to us, how was he received? He was falsely accused. The Jewish leaders, they hired false witnesses and they testified with fabricated results of reports. They made up and assigned all kinds of motives to him. And yet Jesus on the cross spoke those famous words words in Luke 23, verse 34, when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The very people who falsely accused him, Jesus showed grace to the undeserving. Now, years later, his disciple, Stephen, having experienced and received that very undeserved grace himself, learns to display it. Because Stephen later in life is under the same circumstances of Jesus. He is falsely accused. There is a council of Jews set up, false testimony given. And as they pick up stones ready to execute him, Stephen, full of the same grace that he received from the Savior, what does he say in Acts 7, verse 60? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen was able to show grace to the undeserving, even when he was falsely accused. Still years later, we see it in Paul's own life. As Paul now stands falsely accused by those in Corinth who are questioning his motives, his ministry, his identity, his character. And Paul, having experienced the same grace of the Lord Jesus, is able to show it to the undeserving. Dear friends, living with gospel integrity means that in the midst of unfair, ungracious assumptions and accusations made about you, you are able to show grace to the undeserving. Now, in a lot of ways, that can sound like a worldly message because you may have heard people say things like this. Take the higher road. You, be the bigger man. And it sounds like, oh, the word of the gospel sounds very similar to that, but it's very different. Here's why. Telling yourself to take the higher road or be the bigger person actually requires that you see yourself better than others and others is worse than you. Why must you take the higher road? Because those people are on the lower road. Why must you be the bigger man? Well, because they're the smaller man. And when you motivate yourself in that way, you have a way of lifting yourself above others, being self-centered, self-righteous. But the gospel comes along, and the gospel flattens everything out and says, why do you show grace? It's not because you're on the higher road or because you're the bigger man but because you understand you're no different than them. That apart from Christ, you are a sinner, an undeserving sinner, a foremost of sinners. Apostle Paul, the great apostle and missionary himself wrote in 1 Timothy 1, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of which I am the foremost. Can you humbly confess that about yourself? That I show grace to those who don't deserve grace to me, not because I'm the bigger man and not because I'm taking the higher rope, but because I understand I've been a recipient of undeserved grace. Dear friends, if that's you, if you've received this, then with gospel integrity, you show grace to the ungracious, which leads to our third and last point. Be consistently true to your word. And Paul goes on to say in verse 17, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? And Paul's saying, was I vacillating? Was I going back and forth between two things? In, in essence, Paul's saying, I'm not a flake. You guys know what it means to be flaky or what it means to have flaky people in your life? Maybe that's you. You make commitments that you don't really intend to keep. You say one thing, you go the other way. Your yeses and nos are a bit ambiguous. That's a big problem in our culture. People don't keep their word. They say yes to things, but leave the back door open so they can get out of it. When somebody asks you to RSVP with the answer response of yes and no, you like to click maybe and interested. We do this why? We schedule things and we intend to keep them only until something better comes up. We like to say, oh, I'll try to do something because we don't actually want to be held accountable to it. And Paul comes along and he says, I wasn't like that. I was consistently true to my word. I I had no intention of changing my plans and promises unless something very real and urgent came up. Now, why did Paul live this way? It wasn't because he was raised, right? It wasn't because he had good parents who taught him how to be a man of his word. Paul is a man consistently true to his word because of the gospel. Now, how does that connection make sense? And Paul goes on to explain. He says in verse 18, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Paul says, My reliability, my promise keeping stems from God's faithfulness. And then he expands. It gets a little theological, but he says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And anyway, Paul, this is what Paul does. He goes, All the promises that you know in the Old Testament that God made about sending a Savior and a Redeemer into the world, those weren't empty promises. Those weren't empty words and phrases. And Some of you who are parents of young children, you know that one way uh, to get your kids to to stop bothering you (laughs) is to make promises. Daddy this, mommy this, and you say, well, oh, we'll get, I, I promise we'll do that later. And you have no intent to keep that promise. You're just crossing your fingers, hoping that they'll soon forget. Well, when God comes and he makes promises in the Old Testament, he doesn't do that, hoping Israel will soon forget, but he intends to keep his promise and he indeed kept his promise. He kept it in sending Jesus Christ, which is why Paul goes on to write, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Jesus is the resounding yes to all God said he would do because Jesus is the promised Savior come into the world. The gospel is good news only because God kept his word because there would be no gospel if God made promises that he did not keep. And because God is faithful, The gospel now comes to us as the power of God for salvation to all who believe. If you've received this, listen to what Paul then says in verse 20. He continues, That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Amen. What does amen mean? Well, amen is a statement of affirmation. Most of us are familiar with it because it's the way we end our prayers. You say amen at the end of the prayer because it marks agreement. When say you say amen you're saying let it be so. I agree with this. I affirm this. But you know what? Amen shouldn't only be spoken, articulated at the end of prayers. You know, even in sermons. Good presbyterians should know that it's biblical and it's fitting to let out a couple of amens every once in a while. Because it means yes, Lord, I believe it. I believe it to be true. Amen. Amen. What does your amen do? Your amen is a reaffirmation that what you are hearing is what you agree with. What Paul is saying is that a Christian's life should be a living amen, a living response that God has been faithful to his promises in Christ. They are yes in Jesus. And so the way we live our lives is in response. Our lives are a living amen, Think God has been faithful. And so I will be faithful. I will be consistent to my word. I will keep my promises. I will let my yes be yes and my no's be no. And when you live in this kind of way, with gospel integrity that honors God, even when accusations come your way and your motives are misunderstood and misjudged, The consistency of your character rises to the top. Some of you may have done an experiment like this in science class when you were younger, where you mix water and oil together. And what happens? We all know that oil rises to the top. It sits above the water. So too, your character formed by the gospel should be like that of oil. Though when gossip and slander and accusations and baseless assumptions come, your integrity rises to the top. Because people know you are consistently true to your word. Which makes me wonder in what ways are you giving attention to being a person true to your word? What commitments in your life do you need to uphold and what promises do you need to keep? If you say you're going to pray for somebody, do you pray for them and make it a priority? You said that you were going to be committed to a community group. Are you doing everything you can to attend that community group? If you say you'll take care of something, can people really rest assured that it'll get done? If you say you're going to be somewhere, can people know without having to check up and confirm that you know the plans to have that you will actually be there? We should be a people whose yeses are yeses and noes are no because our life is the declaring amen. The gospel promises are always yes in Christ, that God is faithful to his word. This is how we live with gospel integrity. Now, friends, as I and it, it's unfortunate that in this life, there are times when you will be misjudged and misunderstood. There will be times when you'll be accused, even attacked by fellow Christians, there will be times your motives will be misconstrued and no charity extended towards you. Now in those moments, we can respond in the flesh: fire with fire, finger pointing with finger pointing, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that begins to form us in our character, produces a gospel integrity. What does that look like in your life? Number one, seek to keep a clear conscience before God first and foremost. Number two, remain gracious toward the ungracious and the undeserving. And number three, be consistently true to your word as God has been true to his. Let us pursue gospel integrity in all we do. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you and we ask you that you would shape us and form us to be people who uphold such integrity in our lives. Holy Spirit, make us into far more than just good people. We don't just want more morality. We want to be new people. And by your power at work in us through the gospel of Jesus, to live in such a way that brings you glory. Remind us, O Lord, as we leave, that through Christ we are justified in your sight and right before you. So let us seek, first and foremost, to have a clear conscience before you. We know that through Christ we have been shown undeserved grace, and so teach us to share abundantly that grace with others. We know that through Jesus, all your promises are yes, because you are faithful. So make us faithful and true to our words. Produce this integrity in us, O Lord, as our lives are transformed more and more by the power of the one who gave his life for us, so that we might live our lives for him. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our treasure. Amen.